Hello and welcome back to Bourbon Barrel Talk. I'm your host, Scott Mitten. Today we have with us and the great privilege of having the Miss Marianne Eves with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. How about you? Doing well, doing well. Good deal. And our co-hosts that are with us today, we have Toby Hatfield, Josh Hillman, and Matt Jasnoff. So we're all going to be uh, talking to Marianne this afternoon, um, finding out a little bit about her journey through the spirits world and industry, and uh, we're going to ask her some questions. So uh, first of all, Marianne, Marianne, sorry, how did you get started uh, with your journey in the spirits industry? I um, I started with a chemical engineering degree. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I actually didn't go to college right away. I helped my mom open a business in downtown LaGrange. Uh, it was a little consignment art and craft boutique that didn't last very long. And then I had to get serious about what I wanted to be when I grew up. So my dad actually suggested trying out chemical engineering. So I went to school for that thinking I was going to do biodiesel or renewable energy, um, even like fuel additives. I, I had uh, been in auto shop in my junior and senior year of high school. So I was like, being in the auto industry would be cool. Even thought at one point I might be a diesel mechanic, but but wound up going a different route. And, um, you know, it's a process of being an a engineering student at, at University of Louisville. You have to find an internship. And I was just lucky enough to be interviewed for the position at Brown Foreman because that was the, the co-op that everybody really wanted. Uh, and then I also interviewed anybody that, that was interested in, in having me in because I knew it would be good for experience. But um, it came down to a decision between a, a position in Lexington doing renewable energy research and choosing Brown Foreman and making bourbon. And I just thought to myself, of all the things that you could make with corn, why in the world would you make fuel when you could make bourbon? So <laughs> Absolutely. It kind of changed everything, yeah. <laughs> so I got one real quick question here. You took that Chemistry 201 class at speed school, and you decided to continue to be a chemical engineer? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think that the rough uh, thing for me was all that math. <laughs> I'm a civil engineer, so uh, the chemistry was like the complete opposite for me. It's nothing right. I wanted to touch. I hear you. So tell us something that you learned uh, during your internship at Brown Foreman that has really stuck with you over the you know last decade or so. I'm sorry, can you, can you say that one more time? I said, tell us one thing that you learned during your internship at Brown Foreman that has stuck with you over the last decade or so. Oh, gosh, there were a million things that I learned at Brown Foreman that, that I've used throughout my career. Um, I would say one of the biggest learnings that came from Brown Foreman that I'm not sure I would have gotten a, as deep an understanding of had I been uh, employed at, at another distillery is the process of maturation, how all of that science works, having the, the depth of understanding that I do, having worked for a company that owns their own cooperage and spending the time that they do um, with the science and the research in, in that area. So I would say, yeah, all about Oak. So all about Oak. Yeah. One of the, one of the questions that I had was, um, what would, what would you, what kind of advice or would you want to give someone who's a college student or really anyone, um, that was looking to get into the spirits industry and maybe they're a chemical engineer, maybe they're just uh, someone who's distilling something in their backyard. What, what, <laughs> what kind of advice would you give to that person? Um, 
trying to get into this industry? Passion is a huge part of um, being successful in the spirits industry and also having lots of patience. So if you are attempting to get to break into the spirits industry, it might take some time to be able to find an opportunity uh, or you could make an opportunity yourself. You know, there's uh, a million different ways to, to come at it. But if you want to be on the, the more technical side in the distillery as a distiller, I would say starting in, in any kind of similar industry in beverage or, um, you know, food, making wine, making beer, um, lots of food manufacturing uses a lot of the same equipment. Uh, just thinking of it technically as an engineer, you'll, you'll use filtration and pumps and, and, uh, temperature gauges and flow meters and probably using a similar type of um, software to monitor it all. But that, that's, that would be my recommendation. Start, start in the, get your foot in somewhere uh, that, that you're excited about, maybe not <laughs> as excited about, um, but then that'll make you more attractive to a, a, a bourbon distillery as the positions start opening up. So when you got into everything, were, was your goal to be working, making bourbon, or was it just, I, I want to know more about the spirits industry, I want to make gin, I want to make vodka and everything else, or was it specifically bourbon? No, I, I didn't drink bourbon before I started working for Brown Foreman. I, I drank Captain Morgan and Tequila Sunrise. <laughs> bring back bad memories. So, yeah, I know, right? So I, it was a, a definitely an evolution for me going from um, not appreciating spirits, I would say, to uh, becoming their, their master taster over time. So my uh, interest in starting at Brown Foreman was really, I, I was aware that it, it was probably going to be a fun job. I was aware of, of Brown Foreman as a company, knew they were a great company and thought, if nothing else, it'll be, you know, something nice to put on my resume. Yeah. So... So I guess as a master taster, you know, what are the key things that you look for? You know, what, like, what's your, like, this is, this is my favorite flavor profile. This is my palate. This is awful. This is going to be hand sanitizer. You and, know, kind of what's your distinction? And let me piggyback <laughs> on top of that as well. And also, how do you become a master taster? Yeah, I'm great at tasting things. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Um, so... I'll, I'll start with how do you become a master taster first. So I, I didn't really know that I had a, the skill that, that would qualify me to be a master <laughs> taster. I just started doing it. So they, um, they being Brown Foreman, uh, they trained me to be on their just kind of standard consumer replicating uh, sensory panel. So I would go up there a couple times a week. Sometimes I would volunteer to go more often and, and taste, uh, you know, four or five, sometimes six triangle tests. And this is where you have two samples that are the same and one that's different and you have to identify the outlier. Well, they, they figured I was pretty good at that. I kept winning this top tongue award that they, they would give out every month. And so they offered to start training me on their expert panel, which is, was evaluating the age spirit, the new make, um, stuff that's a little more tricky. And then you start looking for defects too. It's not just, it's something different. It's like, Okay, there is something different. What's different, and how do we fix it uh, if there's a if there's a problem? Hold on, I I, I have yeah. a quick question. Did you say there was a master tongue award? Is that what you said? <laughs> Top tongue. Top tongue award. <laughs> Top Did they tongue. Did they have trophies out for that? 
Do they get what? Do they get trophies? Trophies out for that? That would be awesome. Oh, you get a you get a little piece of paper. (laughs) I was top tongue during the month of May. (laughs) It's uh, yeah, it was really funny. Um, the the way that they ran the the sensory panel, you did get a little bit of uh, um a reward for it. They'd give you like I don't know a nickel a a sample or something like that, but it, it added up quickly. There was one woman that I worked with in uh, research and development. She was in the laboratory with me. Her name is Pam. She never cashed in her money. She had been at the company for, I don't know, maybe 10 years by the time I got there. And she had something like uh, $500 or, or something like that of, of um, the sensory money that had just racked up over all the years. So it's, uh, it's funny. But anyway, you you asked what what kind of flavors I look for and what are some of my favorite flavors and um, a little bit about my palate. What I learned about myself, you know, going going through the process of training to be a master taster through this ground form and sensory program is very technical. Um, you have to check so many boxes as far as uh, aroma and what you can taste, and it was a a um, program to be developed into a master taster that was actually created by the master distiller chris morris in in um collaboration with the sensory department so these are people that are very highly skilled and i really didn't know what i was doing so (laughs) luckily i have a pretty good sense of smell when when I got to the point where I was able to start working on some projects on my own and, and evaluating, you know, what, what would go into a bottle to sell, you know, aside from just evaluating defects and that sort of thing, I found that my palate really leans toward uh, balance. So I, I don't particularly enjoy tasting something that just has one dominant note. Mm-hmm. Like this sample is super oaky or this one is just a spice bomb or this one is like all vanilla. I want to taste some some uh, some variety of that. So it's got some spice. It's also got a little bit of oak. It's got some, the sweetness, but we're also seeing these fruit and floral notes that are, are so special. Um, yeah, I think my, my palate leans toward toward balance. I guess what's your daily drinker then? <laughs> I I uh, I like trying new things. So, working for Brown Foreman forever, I worked there for six years, and I don't know if you all are aware, but Brown Foreman gives their employees money to buy their products to share with people. They call it product I'm promotion. Fully money. aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great. Anytime I would go out with my friends or had a party to go to, I would just take Brown Foreman products. So after I transition from brown foreman away from brown foreman i was like wow um you know it kind of sucks that they're not paying me to drink anymore but now i feel (laughs) like i can drink anything they you know remove the handcuffs um i can try just about anything so i i got to like a lot of different things i've got a particular fondness for uh, wild turkey products so russell's is is one of my go-to's um but i still will pick up brown foreman products i mean woodford double oaked was the reason i think i fell in love with with bourbon okay so awesome. you, you kind of spoke yep. of wild turkey um I, I just recently watched the documentary neat for like the yeah. second or third time so what was it like spending time with legends of the bourbon industry the jimmy russell's the freddie johnson's Things like that. 
No, it's, it's wonderful. I, I didn't know Freddie well before filming Neat, and we've become friends since then. Um, Jimmy Russell and, and Eddie, I, I had been familiar with, and they had come out to see me at the distillery at, at Castle and Key, um, even prior to the filming of, of that movie. But being around them, it, it, it's... Um, it's been wonderful how supportive they've been of me in, in my career, especially when I made the jump from Brown Foreman and, and everybody thought I was just absolutely insane. <laughs> so you mentioned that not necessarily put handcuffs on you, but did, did certain uh, companies that you work for, did they not want you to go out and try other products and see what, what, what else was on the shelves? I wouldn't say that they didn't want you to try their products. It just seemed like um, if you're going to a bar, we want you to support our brands, if that makes sense. So if I wanted to go to a liquor store, pick up a bottle of Old Forester and uh, a bottle of Russell's and some Four Roses and, and this and that, that's that's totally okay. I, I, I don't think they ever would have discouraged me from getting a, a better understanding of the competitive set, we'll say. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you became the master distiller at Castle & Key? Absolutely. So I was working for Brown Foreman. I was there for about six years as an intern and, and then full-time transitioning to this master taster role from, uh, well, I was master taster and uh, process R&D engineer at the same time. So I had kind of two full-time jobs I was working for Brown Foreman. And I started getting more and more recognition in the industry. Fred Minnick um, interviewed me and several other guys for this article about the next generation of bourbon. Um, I stood out a little bit because I was the only female, the only non-family member, and the only one with a technical degree. So... Um, it was the end of 2014 when these two guys, what, what I had heard, I had heard some, some folks uh, while I was still working for Brown Foreman talking about the two lawyers that didn't know anything about bourbon that bought the old Taylor distillery. But honestly, I had no idea what the old Taylor distillery was. I just thought it was some like rundown cabin down the creek. As long as I had worked for Woodford, I, I never turned the other way and, and drove down the crack and I had no idea that it existed. So when Wes Murray reached out to me on LinkedIn and asked me if I wanted to go down and meet them, um, I was not that anxious to, to go. But then after a while, um, and, and it was actually toward the end of my time at Brown Foreman, I visited uh, Michael Veach in Lexington at Bell's Cocktail House. He had a bourbon academy um, that was sponsored by the Filson Historical Society talking about these historical characters. And I was kind of there just as a spy for Brown Foreman, but wound up learning so much about the industry that I had no idea about, particularly E.H. Taylor and his fascinating story and his contributions to the industry. And then the fact that he made bourbon in a freaking castle. I was like, wait, wait, <laughs> this is the same guy um, that, you know, then this castle is, it still exists. Is that even possible? Um, you know, it was built in the 1800s. Um, so I guess eventually what it was, 
I, I, I didn't have much time to slip away from work because I was working, as I said, essentially two full-time jobs, but curiosity got, got the better of me and I accepted his invitation to come out and see the place. Uh, there it is. <laughs> You've got some gin, <laughs> but I, I, um, I drove down to, to see the place for the first time and it just kind of took my breath away. We had just had an ice storm, so it just looked like this very winter wonderland. And after walking through the property with Wes, they, they had actually already redone that sunken garden. So I could tell that they were doing something, even if it was just planting flowers and um, some environmental abatement in the castle itself and took me through there. There were still, every window was broken. There were holes in the roof, but I was really inspired by their vision and, and what their hopes were for the project, even though the budget and the timeline were severely underestimated. Um, I, I often say I'm grateful that I didn't know then what we eventually learned through the process because I don't know if any of us, myself, Will or Wes would have taken on the project had they known the the true capital investment for a time investment yeah, that, I mean, that it would take to get the place up and going again. So what was it like resurrecting, you know, basically hallowed ground for bourbon? I mean the the Taylor distillery, I mean It was a lot of work. <laughs> so did you find anything dusty and old in, in in any of the parts of the castle or area one of my favorite things that that we discovered um and really it was i don't know if y'all know who brett connors is he's the brand ambassador there at, at castle and key but he was doing some digging down in the bottom of that octagonal tower that you see in old photos of the distillery um when you're looking at the face of the distillery it's there to the right but it was the production manager's office that down there in the bottom, and it was still stacked, you know, waist high with with papers. It had been flooded, so everything was kind of done, musty and and moldy. Um, but he went in there and dug through and found a lot of the old engineering drawings from the site. Wow! You know, people had had access. Just you know, the public had had access for decades to come onto the property to walk through the buildings to you know sleep in the bottom of the one, one of the fermentation vats there was actually a sleeping bag in the bottom of one of those huge <laughs> 11,000 gallon tanks and I, I think it was like a, a dare like high school kids dare you to sleep in the, the tank at old taylor but anyway you know there wasn't much left that to say, you know, folks, if, if there were interesting things, more interesting things, they, they had been taken, you know, a, a lot of the old gauges had been popped out of their original places. It was, it was ransacked. And even through the process of being there every day and all the no, no trespassing signs and the obvious construction that was going on, there were still people hopping the fence and coming in and I'd be like, we're not open. And be like, oh yeah, I, I was just taking a look around. I'm like, no, you're gonna fall in a hole and hurt yourself. <laughs> you, you need to go. <laughs> so, so, how long did it take to actually get it up and running to the point where you're actually able to make product? So, I started there at the beginning of 2015, and we started. I started the still for the first time in November of 2016. So, it took um, almost two full years to rebuild the the whole site and get the stills going which actually 
seems a little bit crazy that we were able to do it that fast. But I think part of it was I got, I came on board in January of 2015 and the guys were like, all right, so you think we can get this place going, you know, by like November. <laughs> and I, I was like, yeah, that sounds possible. Sure, we'll shoot for that. And then we, um, we got down the road a little bit. It was about halfway through the year before we really could get into the distillery and, and start installing things after putting in the electric uh, service and upgrading the water and all of the, doing all of this stuff under the surface. And we hire this group of pipe fitters um, and they came on board 80 to 90% of the work that they do is, is distillery work. And we're talking to them. We're like, so we think November that we'd like to have everything up and going and running. And, and, and you should have seen the looks on their faces. Uh, they were like, um, okay, well, we can try, but it's we'll, we'll do our best. We'll just tell you that. <laughs> so, yeah, it so, was a, a full year after our original uh, hope to have the distillery going. I shared one of the early videos. I used to do these um, videos on, on Facebook. I, I shared one where I was just hanging out at the top of the still the other day on, on my Facebook page. And it was funny to, to hear myself say, oh, yeah, we're going to be open in a month and whatever. And, you know, how, how um, I guess, you know, naive, just not knowing um, how much work it was going to take. So was there anything used from the original distillery when you when you actually got up and running yeah quite a bit and it it to his credit and maybe a little bit to my frustration will arvin pushed a lot for using as much of the original stuff as, as we could um you know after a few months of running things were breaking and it was kind of you know to the point where i was pulling my hair out i'm like we should have just um you know taken it out when we had the chance while everything was still gross in here and, and rebuilt it uh, from the get-go. But, you know, there there was like um, in the mash cookers, this old agitator, a rake agitator, um, similar to what they use at Maker's Mark. Um, most folks have ditched the rake agitator because there's so many potential issues with them. Um, contamination being a big one because the grain that settles on top of those arms but if you have a good enough cip system it, it's not a problem um but it this was like a hundred plus year old agitator and our engineers at vitog um made a bet with the guy that was going to be fixing the tank for us and he said if, if uh, there's no way that that agitator can be used if, if, if it even turns, I'm going to take you out for a steak dinner. And he went over to it and just pushed it with his hand and it, it, it moved. So it was amazing that things were in decent enough condition that they, they could even be used for, you know, that, that agitator only lasted us a year. Like we got up and going and then it broke down and, and had to redo the tank. And, and that was a big uh, to do. But the fermentation vessels, the cookers themselves, um, that seven foot or six foot diameter column still that was there in the distillery could have been used. And um, probably, you know, looking at how many of the tanks that they're operating now, they sh maybe should look into getting it back up and going, recommissioning it. But um, it, it just was 
too large an, an investment to think about um, at the time. They wanted to start so much smaller. And then as, as everything started rolling and people started kind of tasting what was coming off the still, the, the opportunity just was um, exponential. Mm-hmm. So when you uh, started actually barreling your products, was the, the recipe something that you generated? Or was, it, was it a collaboration? Or um, how, did, how did that original recipe come that, that we're going to taste hopefully in a couple of years when, when they start uh, bottling some of the, the bourbon that you made? Yeah. When, uh, when Will and Wes uh, contacted me about the opportunity, I was inspired by the history of the site and thought, you know, agreed with them that their core brand should honor the tradition of what Colonel Taylor had made there. There was no recipe written down for, for what he produced. If, if somebody has it, I, I don't know what that was. But what we did have was a bottle of Old Taylor bourbon that was made at the castle in 1917. So I used that, the, just the flavor profile of it, as inspiration to create um, what what is in barrel there now. So white corn, a lower percentage of rye, a very high percentage of barley. Um, also tried to find a yeast strain in the distillery, worked with Wilderness Trail and um, isolated some, some yeast from an old pipe that was in the, the yeast room once upon a time. Um, but what we found was that the yeast that, that we were able to, to extract from this rusty old pipe was a wild yeast. It wasn't actually a distiller's mm-hmm. yeast. So unfortunately, uh, we just ended up going. They, it, it's, it's really hard to not say we, when I'm referring to Castle and Key because I was there for so long and I still feel invested in what's in the barrel. But, um, I have moved on since since then. I've been on my own for about a year now. But um, that that recipe was the first one that I created on my own from scratch and and based on that traditional uh, or that the tradition of the site. I also developed a rye whiskey and a weeded bourbon recipe that Colonel Taylor would not have made. So a, a few of the products there, and of course the gin and the vodka. Um, were not something that that Colonel Taylor would have ever produced. Sure. So you brought it up. Um, we were kind of curious. Um, I know there's people that probably um, they fight a lot, a long time to become a master distiller, especially with an opportunity like a Castle and Key, with, where you can get into that legendary uh, facility. What made you step away from Castle and Key? There were lots of reasons. Some of which, you know, I I can't share. Um, I was thinking, I had been thinking even about a year before I made the the decision to leave, that there was something else that I could contribute to the industry, to the spirits industry. You know, I I got the distillery to the point, trained the team uh, so that they they really didn't need me there day to day. They had the recipe, they had the, the SOPs. And they were really smart, passionate guys. They, they could do it. Um, I, I really wanted to continue to innovate and um, create some new products. But the, the opportunities that I saw for myself outside of just working for one brand were maybe more exciting than being um, 
as we said a little bit with Brown Foreman being handcuffed to, to one family or, or one brand. I also saw an opportunity to work in spirits out, outside of bourbon. I'm doing a brandy project now. I really would love to find a way to get into um, the agave spirit world, hmm. but we'll just see what what comes up next yeah we we've talked to several different folks um from um turner wathen that, that does uh, rum and then the folks from um what's the place over there by the stadium i can't think copper of and kings yeah copper and kings that that does the brandy um so we we've actually branched out a little bit too just as, because the industry is just not bourbon but even though that's probably all of our favorites, um, what kind of things are you going to be working on now and that you see yourself working on within the next uh, year or two? Um, right now, I'm, I'm my, the first client that I um, signed up with after leaving Castle and Hughes Hoops Vineyard in Oakville, California with Lindsay Hoops. And what I'm doing with her is, using some of their wine that had been damaged in the wildfires, particularly that in, in 2017, because that was catastrophic. They lost their, their entire year's production, um, but it's still sitting there waiting for, for something magical to happen, to turn you know their, their lemons into lemonade, shall we say. So I have already done some distillation with them and, and the product that we've been able to make so far is actually really exciting probably not going to be ready to, to um, put anything out on the market this year, but also playing with some vermouth. Um, we distilled vodka so that I could play around with some gin recipes uh, using a, a Chardonnay base as well, which is um, kind of exciting. I've also got a, a bourbon project, a couple different bourbon projects, mostly just blending that I'm, I'm working on. Um, there's a couple other exciting whiskey projects. One that one is a beverage that's not a spirit that I'm I'm working on. Um, just haven't released much information about about those other things yet. You know, I, I really had high hopes about um, joining the ranks of motherhood and then getting right back in the saddle and and being able to blaze forward in in some of these projects that that I had been. Uh, discussing uh, through the pregnancy with, with different clients and then with the pandemic, everybody is, you know, so unsure of, of what comes next, what the future is going to look like. Are people, you know, going to resume their normal behaviors or, or is everything changing? So it seems like everything's just in the, a little bit of uh, uh, a gray area, seeing, you know, where we go from here. But yeah, I've got so, some exciting, exciting opportunities um, in the consulting world. Haven't, haven't put too much thought into doing something on, on my own or creating another brand of my own just yet. Uh, I want to spend some time to learn, uh, slow down a little bit, really in, enjoy the opportunity that I have to, um, to soak in Andy's baby moments and, and go from there. So just kind of to... Uh, little bit of a backtrack so the bourbon that was made at castle and key is that is that technically your batch that you created because i know it's not yet out or it's set to be released this year um the 
the recipe that I created for Castle and Key, I, I, it's not been released. They'll they'll release that under under their brand. They've made a ton of whiskey for other people. So we started with that twenty four inch column still, and they installed a thirty two inch not not too long after we got got started in the grand scheme of things. Um, okay, but the vast majority of what's been produced there has already been purchased by, by others. So they have those two warehouses storage capacity for about a hundred thousand barrels. Um, when I left those two warehouses were already almost completely full. Um, but it's, it's either contract storage folks that purchase barrels other places and needed a place for them to go or storing for their contract distilling clients. Okay. No, that's, yeah, just kind of curious, because I know, I thought I had read somewhere that you all were set to put out, like, a, an 80-proof bourbon and then a barrel-strength bourbon this year, so that's what I was asking. That'd be a surprise to me. I I, I haven't really kept in touch with... Ah, that's with fair. Understood. There. So, I've got kind of a three-part question. So, first part is... Um, is there any, what's the most critical part about, you know, learning through the chemical engineer portion that's helped you become a master distiller? And then kind of the piggyback question to that is, you know, when people think of bourbon, they think uniquely oak and they think of water. Um, what makes this area so special in both those categories? And is there a special place that you prefer to get your oak from whenever you're helping to procure barrels or things to that nature? And then, um, is limestone water truly that important to the bourbon making process or could you just take the iron out anywhere else in the u.s and still make as good a product for me having a chemical engineering degree has been really important in the way that i've um, evolved in the industry so i got that internship with brown foreman and then it was through all of these different technical projects the process improvement the product uh, efficiency and that sort of thing that I was able to network in the industry and in, in the company and get the visibility to have the opportunity to, to get into the role that I did. Um, it also has shaped the way that I see uh, product development. So when you're talking about oak and, and water, um, those were something that I got a, a lot of, of uh, experience testing while working for Brown Foreman. Um, the wood that Brown Foreman used was from all over the U.S., just American white oak. Um, they sourced from everywhere. The company that I used when I was working for Castle and Key is Speyside Cooperage, and they're located in Jackson, Ohio, and they try to source oak from a 100-mile radius around the Cooperage. Um, I, I found that, you know, you only get one barrel from one oak tree. So it, there's always going to be these different variations in, in your barrels, the flavors that they contribute. I think it's fascinating to, to think that there's a terroir influence in, in oak just the same as there is um in the grain or you know in, in other spirits and beverages we talk they'll talk about terroir and the ingredients and grapes in particular um it's definitely an, an influence i love the idea of trying different regions or different species of oak as well 
because the regulation for bourbon is is just oak. It, it doesn't specify whether it's red, white, or American or French or you know wh- wherever. So at Brown Foreman, they they had tested all of those different things, and and I got the benefit of seeing the results of some of those uh, trials. But with each different variable. Um, you'll, you'll have a different outcome. So even though I knew what an old forester tasted like in, in some of these different unique oak varieties, I didn't know what my castle and key distillate would have tasted like. So I, I would have wanted to try those, those different experiments over again. So the work is never done. And the, as far as the water goes, that the limestone water my opinion is that it's not the flavor of the water it's the quality and the nutrients in the water that feed the fermentation so the yeast act differently with limestone water in the mix than they do if it's a filtered municipal source Hmm. so you made you made reference to a couple of things one was networking that happened at brown foreman and earlier you had referenced, I think, being the first female master distiller since Prohibition. And shortly after you became a master distiller, it seemed like it just kind of opened up a floodgate here locally. And, and maybe so more out of UofL than anything that you started hearing more female bourbon names around. Do you all have a network where you're encouraging and helping, whether it's through UofL or through a distillers association that you all are communicating and promoting? <laughs> it's underground. No, <laughs> no, I, I think that kind of around that same time, organizations, groups like bourbon women, whiskey women, whiskey chicks, that sort of thing, they, they were all on the rise. So there was a big conversation happening, you know, not just in our industry, but around the world about women in, in uh, non-traditional fields and, and, um, that balance of, of work and life. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time working for a company that really valued diversity and could see that I, I had the, the technical skills and the, the passion to do a really good job for them, um, filling the role. So I, I, um, was really excited to be in that position at Brown Foreman and have the opportunity to be a part of the development of um, Elizabeth, who is now the associate um, or assistant, what do they call her, associate master distiller, assistant master distiller uh, with Chris for Woodford. And then Jackie Zykan. I, I was not with Brown Foreman when she started. Um, and I think that my departure probably left an, an opening and allowing um, an opportunity for, for her to come in and develop into that role of master taster at uh, Woodford, in which she does an incredible job. I have a lot of respect for, for both of those women. Um, others in the industry, you know, being a master distiller to me is something that shouldn't be tossed around. So even though it seemed like, you know, I'm a newcomer in the industry, I had gotten a ton of experience, a depth of knowledge, having worked for Brown Foreman for the length of time that I did, but also just because I was raising my hand for every possible opportunity. You want to go to Belgium? Hell yeah. You want to go to Mexico? Yes, I do. You want to 
go down to uh, Lynchburg and work the night shift at the Jack Daniels Distillery for three months and run up and down the still taking samples um, into the night. Yes, I do. <laughs> so I got all this experience working myself into the ground, but it ended up, you know, paying off for me. I, I um, was able to communicate that I really know what I'm doing and what I'm talking about and, and, in, in enough of a, a, a way that two guys, you know, wanted wanted me to leave their distillery and to have the responsibility of starting what was the most important distillery in Kentucky was just really a, a once in a lifetime chance. I think that's all great. I've got a, a nine year old daughter that I keep telling you're going to be a chemical engineer. You're going to go to speed school. <laughs> And you're going to be my master distiller in about 20, <laughs> 25 years. So I'm training her now. And at some point in time, I'll have to introduce her to you so you can give her some business. That's awesome. Well, she's got about 10 years and, until she she could get an internship, really. Absolutely. That's awesome. Congratulations, Daddy. You're raising her right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And she'll go to UofL for sure because we can't yeah. have a Wildcat fan in here. Mm, no, we cannot. <laughs> So um, one of the things that we've kind of seen as we are have been going around talking to other distilleries and things to that nature are uh, some people have kind of went away from hiring necessarily a master distiller as a distiller, but they've been hiring like really, really top-end brewers. Is that something you, you think might change the dynamic of how bourbon is made in the future, or is that something you think that is almost just as important as somebody who understands the science of distilling is somebody that understands the fermentation process better. The mindset that a brewer has coming to the table is a lot different than if you're just coming up in the industry as a, as a distiller from the get go. Um, like the distiller at new riff, Brian, who, who came from a beer background. It's, it was, I think a little jarring to him, uh, to learn how lax um, sanitation in particular is in the distilling industry versus the, the brewing uh, industry. So I, I think they're a little overqualified maybe for the, the fermentation and the cooking side of the, the process, but they come with a, a flavor perspective that's so interesting. I, I'm actually excited for the ways that that could change the the process of of um of making whiskey that was all news to me and i was really shocked when we went to new riff uh over christmas break and got to meet brian and they introduced him as you know former uh guy from sam adams i just thought that was the neatest thing and i've loved sam adams for a long time and uh just pretty cool and unique to see how things are changing and winemakers getting into the industry too, like uh, Lisa Wicker, formerly of the um, Starlight Distillery, now with Widow Jane. You know, she she was in wine and then fell in love with spirits and eventually got into uh, consulting. I she was one of the first people I reached out to when I decided to make the move into consulting myself. So when you moved into the consultant world, did you have to get over bourbon not just being made in the state of Kentucky? <laughs> was that a big deal? I think at that point, because I, I had been traveling around quite a bit, and maybe that was one of the things that, that pushed me, um, that got me excited, that, that 
that really um, validated or, or solidified for me that there there was an opportunity for me to make great bourbon outside of the state. But I my partner owns a circus, so um, about a year before I decided to make the move, maybe not quite a year, but a, around that time before I decided to to move into consulting on my own, I was traveling here and there to visit him in these different locations where his show would pop up and visiting distilleries as I had the opportunity and found some incredible producers in places that I never would have expected to, to find um, such elegant spirits. Um, you know, I, I was just like everybody else, uh, had my nose up about Kentucky bourbon being the best in the world and, and still by far across the board, um, producers in, in Kentucky have the best chance at making a superior product because of the environment and the ingredients and, and the passion. And there's a bar, there's a bar in Kentucky that everybody is held to. And if you're not, um, if you're not gonna meet the bar, I think you're going to hear from, from other folks in the industry pretty quickly. So I, um, I definitely think that it, it's possible to make great bourbon outside the U.S. or not outside the U.S., outside of uh, Kentucky. Um, it's different, though. It, it's not Kentucky-style bourbon. It's got its own unique um, unique style. So if, if we ventured out past Kentucky, where, where would you recommend us going to, to take a, uh, uh, a tour and a visit and, and trying some products from somewhere other than Kentucky? Because right now, really all we've been focusing on is Kentucky and Indiana. We've been up to uh, Spirits of French Lick, and we're going to go to Huber's and things like that. But outside of the local area here, where would you recommend is something that, that we would find uh, very interesting and, and a great product to try? They're making great stuff in New York. There's several distilleries up there. They're making good stuff. Um, ha have you spent much time in, in Tennessee? They're, they, they've got some, I mean, most of them are calling it Tennessee whiskey, mm -hmm. but let's be honest, <clears throat> it's it's all bourbon. Cause wasn't it the, isn't it the Rough Riders distillery that's up there in New York? Um, I was I was more referring to Kings County. And, oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I just love what they're doing. I, I think a lot of them and their their products. Um, even at Texas has some interesting distilleries. Um, I spent a, a little bit of time in a couple of distilleries in Austin. I went to go see Garrison Brothers. I I like their product. It's not it's not the same as Kentucky Bourbon, but it's got to me something that's really unique. A unique body, a graininess. Um, that actually to me doesn't taste immature. It's just a, a, a highlight, um, a unique flavor. Uh, in, in Oregon, they're making great bourbon at the Oregon Spirits Distillery. I, I keep um, throwing them out as well as Woodenville in, in Washington State. Um, they're, they're making really delicious product. Um, California has got a, a few uh, distilleries that, you know, and, the, and these folks are really passionate and maybe didn't have the, the education or come up through the industry the way that I did, but to have the opportunity to talk to them about how they came up with the processes that they, they're using has been super fascinating. So what do you think about the bourbon industry as a whole where basically um, there's 
eight, 10, 12 bottles that are being allocated that everybody's trying to get in line for and, and paying more for than what you should with regards to retail. What do you, how do you, how do you look at that entire process there? Do you think it's a good thing or do you think that, um, um, you, you wish that, that it basically would try everything? I, I think there's definitely more out there to try. The issue is a lot of these small distilleries, even if they are making fantastic spirit, it's, it's hard to get the attention of distributors. And, you know, they're small, so they don't have a lot of product to begin with. And if you're trying to get outside of your home state, you need to have at least a little bit of supply that you can keep people going once they fall in love with you. Um so there are many, many things, you know, many distilleries that are making delicious stuff that you actually have to kind of travel for. Um, some of these rare, and I don't know if it's truly rare or just hype, but these limited bottles that people kind of punt for, um, I, I don't know if it's doing a service to our industry um, other than bringing some a little bit of visibility, you know, you're, you're get articles written about this bourbon that nobody can find. And, and maybe that starts people just thinking about, well, bourbon must be something worth, uh, standing in line overnight and <laughs> doing all this crazy stuff. So, you know, I, I don't know if there's an aspect of it where that press is, is good for just the name of bourbon. Um, but I, I definitely think that highlighting only a, a few brands in um, an industry that's making so many more interesting, unique things is is, is good or not. I, I, it's, I, my gut says no. <laughs> it feels like the industry is moving for towards a single barrel select or private barrel select as more and more of what I purchased are single barrels, whether it's from Old Forester or Russell's Reserve, Private Barrel Select, or, uh, you know, a variety of those are two of my favorites, but a variety of them, it just seems anymore that's what people are going for. Do you see a change in the industry towards that? I think it comes with the education of the consumers, too. You know, once, once people really start to appreciate that single barrels have such interesting differences and that when a store goes out and, and goes on one of these um, barrel picking experiences that they've um, got a certain level of quality in mind that, you know, you can kind of align your palette with retailers or accounts um, around you and say, I always like the picks that come from so-and-so or, you know, it's been hit or miss with this guy, but it's always something interesting or gal. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, that's one of my favorite things is trying single barrel. So I think that definitely, um, once people get a, get a taste, you know, they, they kind of get bit by that, that's that bug. So if Marianne was allowed to walk through a Rick house and was going to pick a single barrel, are there any distinct, like things you notice about a barrel that makes you go, hmm, I think I want this one, whether it's, you know, some gel on the side from where it's seepage or whatever. What makes you pick something when, you, when, you, when you're walking through a rickhouse? Yeah, uh, I, I like the barrels that are on the windows 
it seems like they're, you know, they're a little more concentrated. They've been baking some. Um, typically, they're a little more complex, but it's not always the case. You know, there could be one hidden in the middle in the darkness of, um, you know, a low floor that just absolutely blows you away, which is the case at Castle and Key. Some of the, the barrels, the first barrels that went into that long warehouse in the, in the very middle in the aisle on the bottom floor, one of my favorite rye barrels um, that I'll probably never find out what happens to it. But <laughs> I tasted it so many times, it's probably half full anyway. <laughs> yeah, you just you just never really know um, from appearance. Yeah, I, it's funny, you know, I, I'm a big single barrel fan. Like that's one of my favorite things. One of my favorite single barrel products is uh, Four Roses, and everybody always gets the hype with Tier Six. You know, being up in that upper rafter, really, really sucking in the heat and and the humidity. So I, I just was kind of curious if you had an area that you're like, hey, if I was going to pick something, where would it be? So, so when I worked for Brown Foreman, they had those heated warehouses. Um, so temperature was fairly consistent from top to bottom. It'd be hotter at the top in the in the summer, but it'd be hotter at the bottom in the winter. So the barrels saw a pretty consistent um, maturation profile over the course of the year. So it was really interesting to to see from them um, how t- top to bottom doesn't make as big a difference. Um, but you'll still see variation even even just in in a floor one floor like as you were talking about the the four roses so one of the places that we did visit again was uh copper and kings and they had a unique way to age their barrels and 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 i don't know if they're ever going to see a time where you would would do it the same way in bourbon do you think that do you think that sonic aging with the music and 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 loud music and stuff is something that would ever uh, affect a, a bourbon barrel well i i can i can kind of see the the science in it you know it, it there those um big bass vibrations are it is sonicating the the product the the way that they're doing it at, at um, copper and kings they've kind of got it in a cellar situation so it's not getting the benefit of the um, natural movement that comes with the environment, the changes in the, in the temperature and the pressure out, outside. Um, I don't know if it would have as significant an impact if you, you know, threw a, a big subwoofer on a, a one of the wild turkey metal warehouses or, or not. Um, something just on a, on a little different subject. I had a, a researcher contact me while I was with um, Castle and Key about playing music in the fermentation room, they were thinking mm. that the yeast would act differently if you played uh, classical music for the fermentations, which we never actually got to the point of being able to test. But I mean, there are little live organisms and it's very possible that they would act differently in the presence of these different um, different things. So I don't know. So if we ever took a tour of Castle and Key get, to get back a little bit, um, what should we be looking for? Is there something unique about the, the location, the facility, um, specific rooms or anything like that when, when you're taking a tour that we would want to 
uh, pay close attention to or anybody else is going to uh, visit through there? Mm, things have changed even since this, this past year. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that one. <laughs> okay. So, I, so go ahead. If we were going to go and pick a private barrel, uh, for the podcast, somewhere within a hundred miles of here, where would you recommend we go pick, go pick a private single barrel? Gosh, there's, I mean, there's so much good, good product in, in Kentucky. It's hard to just pick one spot. Um, I just had a, a single barrel of, of new riff last night while we were doing the live stream of meat. And that was, I mean, they're they're They have delicious product. I think Wilderness Trail doing a single barrel with them would be really interesting. They've got um, those different size and shape of warehouses. So seeing the difference that, that that might have on the product would be fun. And those guys are just fun to hang out with too. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the big distilleries, even like Woodford and, and Old Forester, you're, you're going to have a good time. You're going to taste great product. So it, for me, you know, in anywhere that you go, I, I think you're, you're going to have a great experience and come out with a product. I mean, because that's the whole point of it. You get to choose a product that, that you like. So I've always Got been it, a big fan of, you know, Old Forester and Woodford products. But the one thing that's kind of always, it's not really upset me, but it's always, you know, got me a little bit in my feelings is the fact that, you know, they don't offer their product at, at barrel proof. You know, they don't let you get it at that 120, 125 range or, or anything to that nature. I thought they yeah. just started that with Old Forest. They did. They they, they did. The I think they're going to offer yeah. what a hundred hundred proof instead of the ninety. Um, so it's still not okay. quite barrel proof, but I think it's going to be a little bit of a stronger product. But do do you see any changes to that in the near future, or if, just your personal opinion? I don't know. I I I guess um, with the new guard as. Um, different folks take the reins in, in these different places, the product offerings will also change. It's like the transition that you saw after Eddie um, became a master distiller and you saw some new new products from Wild Turkey, I think as, as new um, phases um, take these positions, you'll see different innovations. Good deal. So I, I thought I heard a youngin in the background, so I'm going to have to let you get off here pretty soon. So I've got a couple of like little final questions to kind of go through here. So, any crazy stories you could tell us about, you know, what you've learned or, or, or things that have happened or you've met like a really crazy cool experience um, in the bourbon industry? And then um, I guess last but not least, uh, you know, what is it, what's in your future? I mean, are you going to try to maybe start your own brand maybe soon? Or are you thinking about, you know, getting outside the box outside of, you know, like what you're currently doing with uh, the whole consultation portion? Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite things that I've done in in the industry when I first met um, the farmer that Castle and Key was using to source the white corn mostly, but also Kentucky grown rye and and barley for those original batches that that um, I had envisioned. I don't know if they're still able to source all of their grains from that single farm or not. But when I first met them, I I went out to the farm and 
you know, is asking all these questions about aflatoxins and moisture content and bushel weight and, and all this stuff. And, and their heads were kind of spinning because they, this farm had really only been supplying grain to elevators for animal feed. So they, they had um, really no grasp on, on what any of this stuff meant or the impact that it might have on, on a product that a, a person would consume. So they, they pegged me right away though. They're like, this girl's a nerd. We're going <laughs> to take her somewhere that'll, that'll really be exciting. So we hopped in the car and drove down the road a little bit and, and hopped out and we're standing, <clears throat> we're standing in front of this field and I look out on acres and, and it's just like a patchwork quilt of different heights of grain and different shades of green. And it was just the most incredible thing that, that, um, that I, I had seen and was asking them about it. And they were doing some um, research with the University of Kentucky to do different wheat varieties for use in artisan foods. Uh, so trying thousands of different types of wheat and rye and barley um, for food uses. But, you know, I could benefit from that for use in, um, in whiskey as well. So we kept, kept that relationship going. I knew I wanted to use them for some heirloom grains. I wound up being able to go out and, and run it around in the little experimental fields at University of Kentucky as they were doing some heirloom corn trials. So seeing these different white corns and red corns and, and um, historic yellow varieties being grown and, and just to see what they look like standing next to, you know, a 10 foot stock of, of um, corn. Whereas nowadays they grow much shorter and stockier and closer together. They don't need as much light or water because of the way that everything's been engineered. But to see these, um, you know, more natural, what seem like more natural um, grains, you know, that have to be grown a little further apart, that have to be babied a little bit more was, was really, really fascinating. Um, one of my favorite things visiting the farm was getting to drive a combine this massive piece of farm equipment going through the field, mowing down corn and seeing it fly, you know, fly out the top and into a, a truck as you're, you're going and everything's driven by a GPS, but you can take it off the GPS and just go to it. It's, it's, um, that, that was really, really exciting. It's definitely one of, one of the, my favorite things that I've been able to do, um, in the industry was said, setting that setting up that relationship and and really um getting to know my farmer well as far as you know what what's next for me and what i'm excited to do in the future of the industry i've got some um international aspirations hmm. so I'll kind of leave it a little bit vague but bringing uh, an american style whiskey to some places that have actually some countries that have not produced uh, whiskey. So, um, there's yeah. countries that don't produce whiskey. Yes. Oh my gosh! <laughs> How horrible must I that know, be? Right? That's That's that don't even really have a distillery. So. Oh my gosh! That must be horrible. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Who wants to go there? Yeah. All they got to drink is is like uh, wine and beer. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with beer now, but. Uh... I, I agree. <laughs> so we don't want to take up too much more of your time. Fellas, anybody else have any questions they want to get into Marianne before we, we, we let her go? No, just thank you for being here today. Yeah, I appreciate your time. 
great to talk with you guys. Yeah. Thank you for so having me. Also, Scott, they do a single barrel barrel proof old forester. I hope you know that. Single barrel. Yeah, I thought I thought I heard. Well, I knew that they were gonna. I didn't think they were actually gonna go full proof. I, I thought that I heard yeah, that they were gonna do a hundred proof. Ones. Gotcha. No, they're doing a hundred proof and then a barrel proof, which is like one thirty to one thirty five. Oh, that's gonna be magical. Yeah, yeah so at. well, good deal. <laughs> I, I must have misread that when I saw it. So my my bad there. So well, hey, uh, Marianne, thanks so much for coming on with us. Um, is if anybody wants to reach out to you, do do, do you want to throw out some information there, some advertisement for yourself? Sure. Uh, MarianneEves.com. Um, it's all one word, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E-E-A-V-E-S.com. Um, it's my website. You, uh, there's a little contact form. You can reach out to me for speaking engagements, product um, development or process improvement uh, projects. I'm, I'm always excited to talk about people who want to do uh you know, really cool things in, in the industry. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, Marianne. BMD bourbon master distiller. So yeah. Good deal. That's it. And if you want to reach Thank us you. at bourbon barrel talk, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And also you can email us at bourbon barrel talk at gmail.com. This is Scott Minton, uh, Matt Jasnoff, Toby Hatfield and Josh Hillman signing off. Thanks again, Marianne. We, we greatly appreciate your time.